Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, it is time for two big shows, one in New York, one in Los Angeles. Thursday, February 23rd at the Nerd Melt Theater in L.A., we have the master storyteller, Ms. Margot Lightman, the creator of the uh, famous Stripped Stories show. We also have Luke Cunningham, who uh, uh, everyone talks about his uh, Kobe Bryant story that he's told on the podcast before. And finally, we have Helen Hong. We've been trying to get her on forever, so that is going to be great. The Outrageous Helen Hong. Here in New York, we have a big show on that same night, Thursday, February 23rd. We have the brilliant Al Madrigal. Everyone remembers Al's story about the cleaning lady and the hallucinogens. Uh, We have Glennis McMurray, Jackie Cation, one of our favorites, uh, Mike Amato, and Jan Warner. Listen, if you're anywhere near New York or Los Angeles on Thursday, February 23rd, come on out. Because it really, it doesn't matter who's on the show. Risk is always a remarkably fun evening. Finally, I want to remind you to go check out sexcusemoi.com. Uh, you know, ladies especially are going to be thrilled to see this site because it's gorgeous. Uh, it's like a luxury, erotic spa. And that's because sexcusemoi, they only carry the highest quality of, you know, these uh, sensual toys and pleasure items, bed and bath stuff and stuff like that. Now, you may look at the site and think, okay, this stuff looks gorgeous. It looks like it belongs in the Museum of Modern Art, but there's cheaper toys I could find that are, you know, designed to do similar things. That may be true, but function should be a consideration, too. You get what you pay for, folks. I got one of these tour rings for men, T-O-R, and this thing is on a completely different level. I've never had anything like it. Now, Sexcusemoi is calling the offer they have with Risk a black tie affair. You go to Sexcusemoi.com, you enter the offer code R-I-S-K at the checkout, every order is 20% off, and U.S. orders over $75 get free shipping. So go to Sexcusemoi.com, that's S-E-X-C-U-S-E-M-O-I.com. Enter the offer code R-I-S-K, because it's your sex life, dude. (laughs) So go get the best. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is luger behind me now with a song called monkeys everywhere which is a sequel to their song monkeys only in you know contained isolated locations but that is a very rare cut don't go looking don't go looking And if you never intended to, you're not alone. This very episode is called Unintended. And there's many more unintentionalities to come. In fact, the only reason I didn't call the episode Unintentionalities is because it's not a word. Our first story comes to us from a very good friend of mine, Mr. Beowulf Jones. He is a hilarious writer and performer and director. Here he is now with a story we call The Contender.
So the theme is beginnings. Um, and I, I have a new beginning. Uh, I'm rebooting. I, I'm rebooting my life. I broke up with my girlfriend uh, of five years. We lived together. And something snapped. And I'm like, I, I need a new life. So I'm going to the West Coast, which some people call the left coast. I prefer to think of it as stage right. But... <laughs> Uh, but I, I don't have a job. I don't have an apartment. I just have faith that, you know, I won't die or something. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. My girlfriend and I, we had a gold medal breakup. There, there was no nastiness, no, no bitterness, no snide comments. It was elegant. It was graceful. We are the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers of breakups. <laughs> And our friends are confused because we'll be hanging out separately with our friends and all of a sudden be like, hey, got to go. Me and the ex are seeing Dragon Tattoo. And our friends will be like, do you understand what a breakup is? Because we don't think that you do. And my girlfriend, or ex, sorry. (laughs) We're having fun. We're like, of course we're spending all our time together. We broke up. And, and, uh, and, and she's, still, uh, she's still my best friend. The only reason she's not here is because she's sick. And as soon as I'm done here, I'm checking my email to see if she needs me to pick anything up for her. The, uh, I guess the defining moment of our breakup was when uh, it came time to change the Facebook status. And I was like, I don't want to do it. Do you want to do it? And she's like, I don't want to do it. You do it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do it. But uh, eventually, I did it as long as she was standing next to me. So it felt like we were doing it together. And while this was happening, I was listening to the brand new Noel Gallagher solo album. Because just because the most meaningful relationship of my life had ended, it's no reason to not pay attention to popular music. So I hit the button Uh, the status changes as single. The second I do that, the song changes. Now, just out of curiosity, she and I look at iTunes to see what the name of the song is, and it's the death of you and me. (laughs) So we started laughing. We started laughing hysterically. We had probably the funniest breakup ever. But I'm I'm leaving, and uh, I I think I'm going to be okay, but I'm scared because a deep fear I've always had is having all the tools I need to compete and still not being able to compete. It it makes me feel like when I was 18 years old, I was fed up with the staggering amount of sex that I was not having. (laughs) So I came up with the solution. I would lose my virginity with a hooker. Now, how I got the hooker is a story in and of itself. I only have X amount of minutes up here, but if you come up to me after, I'll be happy to tell you the story. And, and I, was, I was real naive, because like, in my head, I thought, well, you know, she's got this way of life, but when she sees me, you know, she'll probably see my character and fall in love. Because, you know, 18-year-olds who are virgins that live with their parents, that's exactly what every woman is looking for. But I was, I was naive. I was listening to Angel flying too close to the ground as I pulled up to the Marriott Hotel by the Cleveland Hopkins Airport uh, where we were to meet. And when I got there, there was a police cruiser just slowly patrolling the parking lot. And in my head, I was like, oh, God, it's a bust. And uh, I, I, I felt tension, but I figured, well, I'm about to lose my virginity. I'm feeling tension about that. And I, I got into the hotel lobby and I might be making this up, but I don't think I am. I, I sw- there was a well-dressed man who saw me as I entered the lobby. And when I did, he went, and then started following me. And I got to the elevator, and he got in the elevator with me. And I pushed the button to the floor, and he didn't push any button. And so I get to the floor, I walk out of the elevator, and I'm trying to be casual, but I'm looking behind, and he's just following me. And it was a long corridor. There, there were no turns in the hallway, and he just kept following me. And I, had, I, I was tense, and I finally got to the room. It was the very last room in, in the hallway, and his room was the one right next to it. 
So as I knocked on the door, I looked at him, and as he put his key in the door, he looked at me, and there was just this general tension, and whether he was a cop or not, I don't know, but he had to know that there was something shady going on. But I knocked on the door, and that's when the hooker came, and I promptly forgot about it. I'm not going to be crass. I'm not going to describe what she was wearing, but if you're an 18-year-old looking to lose your virginity to a hooker, you would not be disappointed. And when I went in there, I was like, I am here, I I am not here to impress this person, I am not here to tell her my life story, I am here for one reason only, and that is to take care of business. 30 seconds later, I'm in the room, and like, well, ultimately what I want to do is direct. (laughs) And so I paid her the money, it was about six weeks worth of paychecks from Mammoth Video, where the video store I worked, and she told me to take off my clothes and get on the bed, which I did. I laid face down, and she straddled me <laughs> and began massaging my back with lotion, and I just tensed up. I froze, so I'm like, Jesus, I'm being touched. This is what being touched is like, and, and this is going to happen. This is going to happen, and she said, wow, you're very tense, and I didn't say anything. I, I clammed up because I was like, this is, shouldn't I be aroused? I'm, I, this kind of feels good. Should I be, what should I be doing? And she said, got the knots in your back. It would take years to work through these, and I didn't say anything. I was so scared, and finally, when she was done with the massage part, I, I went to my pants. I, I got a condom, which very considerately I had brought along. And, uh, and she says, I can't do this. And I was like, what? And she says, how do I know you're not a cop? And in my head, I'm like, a cop? What am I, 21 Jump Street? I'm 18 years old. I'm stick thin. I don't even look old enough to drive. I'm not a cop. And she comes up with this... Uh, uh, compromise. She says, I have some toys. I'll play with myself. You can watch and you can masturbate. And I don't want to do that because I'm in this room with a hooker, but suddenly she says toys. And I'm like, no, that's dirty. I don't want to do that. And so I, I tried to be reasonable. And I said, do you have any friends you could recommend? And again, she says, how do I know you're not a cop? So I had the idea to show her my driver's license, which was brilliant on my part, because as everyone knows, police officers do not have driver's license. <laughs> so I, I was disappointed, and, but now the, the, the Jewy part of me is starting to come up, and I'm like, I've paid this woman for the hour. I want value for my money. It's only been 15 minutes. So I said, you know, I had you for the hour. Are you saying we're through? And she says, I'll never forget this. Not unless you want to conversate. (laughs) So I wanted value for my money. So I stayed there for the full hour. We barely said a word to each other. We watched Sally, Jesse, Raphael. (laughs) Now, as I was leaving, I was devastated because... I couldn't get a hooker to fuck me. I had the money. I had the hotel room. I had the hooker. I had the penis. I had all the tools I needed to compete, and I still couldn't compete. And that's, that's kind of how I feel now changing my life as I go to this place where I currently have no prospects. I don't know where I'll be in a year, if I'll be dead or what, but I know that I won't be heartbroken because for five years at least, I knew what it felt to have the love of a good woman.
I grew up in a family where my mom and dad loved each other very, very much. And eventually, like they, they maxed out their tool set and their marriage became really, really wonky. And that started happening probably when I was like seven or eight and my mom and dad had gotten a lot of the initial good, wholesome family programming into my brothers. And the story that jumps to mind that informed a lot of who I became later as a, as a sex geek is my brother Ryan and I used to pull out my dad's Playboy collection from the bottom drawer of his, uh, his dresser. And we're at this age of probably five, six, seven, where we would be looking at all the pictures and, and, and the centerfolds, and we would kiss the centerfolds on their naughty bits. And we were old enough to know we probably shouldn't be doing that. It was very fun and innocent. And one day, my mom walked in and caught us doing this. We had like Playboys all over, like more Playboys than you could fold back up and put in the drawer and in the time for mom to arrive into the room. We freeze. And she kind of takes a breath and she says, put all the Playboys away except for one and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And we're like, yipe. So we put everything back, you know, in the same order that we found it so that no one would know that we were ever looking at them. And my mom comes back and sits us down on, on the bed. And I can still remember, you know, the classically the white shag carpeting uh, that my mom and dad had and the, the red bedspread and the brown walnut color of my dad's dresser. And we're just like frozen, petrified, five and six-year-olds or six and seven-year-olds. And my mom takes the Playboy and sits between us and basically just gives us this really amazing feminist talk of why it's totally okay to be curious about women's bodies, why you want to look at them, why that's normal, and why you would feel affection towards them and want to be affectionate. And we're just kind of looking up at her while she's doing this. And she kind of walks us through, you know, it's appropriate to kiss, it's appropriate to touch at certain ages, it's appropriate, you know, at certain ages we'll want to, to pet and then maybe even heavy petting. And I remember just like sitting there being like, what does heavy petting mean? And then she kind of goes, and you know, later there's sex. And most people try to reserve that for when they get married because it just makes things more simple. And that all this stuff is really normal and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. But at the same time, you have to be really respectful of people's bodies because it's not easy being a woman in culture and she's saying this to like six and seven year olds but the way that she said it landed on me in such a way that from that moment on I just knew to treat people differently around their bodies and around affection and so this would later like set the course of my life in trying to figure out who I was in college, sexually, and, and in relationships. And where this becomes important is, of course, I would learn or, or deconstruct that I'm not monogamous. I fell in love with my high school sweetheart and gave my virginity to her and then fell in love with somebody in one of my art classes in college and didn't know how to reconcile it. So my bright idea was, you know, be respectful, tell the truth, don't hide it. And I, I was living off campus with a good friend of mine who was my karate instructor at the time. And, uh, and I go, Bob, I'm like this, that, you know, I'm, I'm in love with this woman in my art class and I'm, I'm still in love with, with my high school sweetheart. And Bob's like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, if they meet each other and see how awesome they are, this will make sense. And he looks at me and he kind of cocks his head to the side like a, a golden retriever who doesn't quite understand the word you just used. And he looks at me and he goes, that is the worst fucking idea I've ever heard. But I'm like, no, this has to work. Fast forward a week later, 
I have them both in my bedroom, I introduce them, and they just sit there, and it is literally the worst idea I've ever had. I can't, I, I was, it was just so gut-wrenchingly awkward. As to be physically painful. Where this becomes important is it set the tone for later in my life when I would realize I'm not monogamous. And to always be truthful to the extent that you can. We're humans. We will sometimes, you know, freak out and lie, but that you need to clean that up. And that ultimately you should be dating your own species, which is this idea that I will only date and sleep with people if they're polyamorous. And, and because I'm so slutty, if they're a slut, if I sleep with people who have their promiscuity handled and that it's not about low self-esteem, but it's about something they pride themselves on, that this is how they express their lives. My relationships are so much easier. Weaving this back to my mom and dad, when it came a time where it was appropriate for me to come out to them, I'd also discovered I was queer. And of course, I discovered this while I'm stripping, in a gay club because I have to pay for college. And it was also very interesting, uh, the dynamics. And oh my God, like that, that person's gay? He doesn't look gay. And wow, like, I guess I don't know what gay looks like. And you know, this is amazing. Like I feel very comfortable and I'm not, I guess I'm not homophobic. And I wonder how not homophobic I am. And it would eventually come to pass. Uh, I was stripping at a gay couple's birthday party. They were the gay couple in the cul-de-sac in the neighborhood with all the straight couples around it. And, and everyone felt so, um, uh, you know, advanced because they, they were friends with the gay couple, you know, in the cul-de-sac. Very, very sweet couple. And they, they hired me to come in and dance uh, at the birthday party to strip. I, of course, you know, do this great little dance number by the pool. And I'm like humping the diving board. And, and, and all the wives are just going cuckoo because it's very Chippendales, you know, tongue in cheek. And so after my stripping routine, I'm, I'm hanging out with everybody and just chatting everybody up, loving meeting all these folks. And so the tequila comes out and I start doing body shots with all the wives. And the couple that hired me, they think this is hilarious because they know I'm, I'm straight. And so I'm making out with all the wives and the husbands are fine with it because they think I'm gay. At the end of you know, a certain point in the evening, they pay me for, for stripping. And then the, uh, the non-birthday boy husband, very sweetly, he's like, listen, he goes, we, this has nothing to do with, with your, your stripping. We're, here's your money. Thank you so much. You can leave at any time. And we'd, we'd love to invite you to stay over the night if you'd like. Um, and please don't be offended. I'm sorry if I've overstepped my boundaries or if I'm not being professional. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, huh? Because I'd already had that epiphany of like, how not homophobic am I? And I'm like, I'll, I'll think about that. So at the end of the night... We say goodbye to all the neighbors. You know, the wives are all had a great time making out with me. The husbands feel all, you know, empowered that their wives are all a Twitter and they're going to take them all home. And they probably, you know, the whole neighborhood probably had sex that night. And then I stayed and, and had what would be my first threesome with this gay couple. And what was so interesting about it was, you know, I'd never been with, with a man before. And the whole time in my head, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. It doesn't occur to me that I'm bisexual or queer, nothing like that. I'm just like, this is fascinating. Wow, he has stubble on his chin. This must be what it's like for women to kiss me when I have stubble on. This is, un his penis feels very different from mine. This has to be because, well, I mean, I guess this makes sense because when I feel my own penis, I'm feeling my hand and my penis, but I'm feeling his penis, I'm just feeling my hand. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, his stubble kind of feels a little weird now that he's giving me a blowjob. This is interesting. And so I'm just in like full geek mode. And it was so obvious how in love these guys were, like super duper in love and like, their gift is sharing their sensuality with a stranger or another man in their bed. 
I remember driving home in my little $250 beat up Ford that I was driving and being like, wow, I'm really not homophobic. The non-judgment and the respect that, that I still have for people and their sexuality in many ways, and this is now that I'm going to get all the clamped, you know, doing what my mom did for my brother and I that, that day, um, instilling in people, telling them, taking a moment and, and slowing everything down enough to, to teach people that it's okay to be curious about other people's bodies, that it's normal to have these desires, to want to, to explore, to want to touch, to want to kiss, to want a heavy pet, which is such a great phrase. And that it's not easy out there for, for, for men and women. I mean, certainly for women in the way our culture is, but for men too, to give yourself permission and to respect people and, and their bodies and their sexualities. And I've, I've got my mom to thank for that. And I don't know that she knew what she was doing at the time when she caught us. And I can only imagine when she left the room and left us there to clean up for those two minutes, what she must, she probably went downstairs and, and had a shot of whiskey or something. But in that moment, she really, you know, she changed my life. Got to love it all From all the things that I've been said From all the stupid books I read I only think that you should love it all Love it all, yeah From all the things that I've been said From all the stupid books I read I only think that you should love it all Love it all, yeah This is Risk This is John Marillion The song is called Love It All And whenever you can't remember where I said to go to find an artist or what an artist's name was, just go to the page for that particular episode at risk-show.com. It'll be in the listen section. Links to all of the musical acts web pages there. And the story we just heard was by Reed Mahalko. What a remarkable character. Reed was so charming when I met him. He's a popular author and sex educator. He's at readaboutsex.com. That's R-E-I-D aboutsex.com. We call Reed's story the mom moment. And before that, we heard the song Default by Django Django. Our next story comes from an absolutely adorable lady. It is hard not to fall in love with Vanessa Ragland, but uh, Linsanity has kept me, kept me focused on priorities. Vanessa told this one at our fantastic shows in San Francisco in January. We call it My Crotch and the Night. From all the things that I've been said From all the stupid books I read I don't think that you should love it all Love it all, yeah from all the things that I've been said From all the stupid books I read I only think that you should love it all Love it all, yeah You know that I've been trying You know that I've been trying You know that I've been trying to love it all This year, Halloween 2011 Um... 
basically, I had two big objectives this year, and they were to remain in control and to have fun. <laughs> um, I have a history of if there's any day that's supposed to be a fun day or a special day, I completely blow it because I have no self-control. So I get really excited that the day's coming and I get accessories and I call everyone. And then the day of, I'm like bouncing around, bouncing around, drinking what anyone hands me. And then I wake up in a bathtub. Um, any bathtub. Just love passing out in bathtubs. But when you get older, it's less cute. And it's more just like, oh, she's got some issues. So... This year, I decided I wanted to not have that many issues and to just have a fun, grown-up Halloween. And uh, my first step was to pick a traditional costume because usually I just wear a wig and like the biggest coat I can find and pick a really annoying uh, name and accent. And I've been Abigail Vanderhosen for four years. And she talks like this all night long. And she hides under people's beds and steals food. <laughs> and I have so much fun, but nobody, nobody else does. She's universally hated. Um, it's so fun to go to a party and hide under someone's bed because eventually they will look for you. That's the thing. You, you will go missing at some point, and then you can grab an ankle and go peekaboo. Um, and you could be, an hour's wait is enough for like the payoff of an ankle grab. Um, but not this year. This year, I dressed up as a pinup girl, which is not like slutty. It's classically provocative, uh, like Debbie Reynolds. But really, the real reason I chose my costume was because I got to wear a leotard. And um, <laughs> not because I want to show off what's going on, but because I, it makes it really easy to believe my inner lie that I'm a dancer. Um, <laughs> Because on Halloween, you can be whatever you want to be. I firmly believe that. And I'm really not a dancer. Um, when I was a little kid, I had a really beautiful older sister. I still have her, but it, we had a different relationship then. Um, and she was a ballerina, like a real one. And so my parents put me in ballet because I was begging. But that career ended when, in my first dance recital, my fat little belly popped my tutu off in a plie. <laughs> and... Uh, there's a video of it. It's the saddest thing. The whole class keeps dancing, and I just turned around and did my dance routine facing the back wall. Um, tutu on the ground. And my parents then tried to encourage me to go into the arts, and they put me in a pottery class, but I was like, no, it was just the wrong genre. Um, tap, tap, like, I love baby take a bow. Um, so they put me in tap dancing lessons, but... I could have been good at that, but I just don't have a grasp on what people do in their bodies and how that works. So my mom had to make these big stickers for my shoes that said right and left. And there's also a video of that recital where I think I do have good rhythm, but I just run into people because I have to look at my feet the whole time. Um, and now, as a grown-up, I go to Zumba like four times a week. Which is not okay for me. Um, it's really like a pedophile having a great view of a playground because it's like scratching near the itch, but it's, it's aggravating the issue. Um, uh, so I went to a grown-up party, and it was at a person's house that they owned, and no big deal. Um, and they had, like, it was gorgeous. There were twinkle lights, and there was a stone patio that was set up as a dance floor. The whole thing was outside. And there was a DJ, and she was a girl. And I was so excited because I just knew we were going to be best friends. Um, I was so sure of it, though, because she likes music. I like to dance. Like, oh, this will work out. So... When, as soon as I got there, I just made a beeline because I was like, oh, this won't be hard for me. Um, oh my gosh, hi, I'm so excited you're here and you're a girl, oh, I love DJs. And she goes, ah, that's cute. And I was like, oh no. Um, so do you DJ a lot for stuff? Because that's so cool. I just spin at parties or whatever. Uh, well, the host told me you really like comedy and stuff. That's really neat. There are like three girls on SNL I can annihilate right now. Whoa, I know, she was so scary. But I kept being nice because I had an agenda. And I just really wanted her to play Digital Underground's Humpty Dance. <laughs> so bad, I love that song. 
and I had big plans for my moves. Um, but she did not like the idea. Uh, you really want me to play that? Well, I'll play it when and if the time is right. There's an art to this. She told me there was an art to it. We're at a Halloween party. Well, okay, but I was still really nice to her and I decided, you know what? I'm gonna just kill her with kindness. No matter what she plays, I'll just dance and dance. And for two hours, that was totally true. She played Kesha, I danced. She played house music that was just weird and I danced. And she played moves like Jagger at least three times. And I danced. Um, but then she did something really horrible. I think she put on something like Butterfly Kisses. I don't know if you know that song, but it's like Butterfly Kisses after bedtime prayers. It's not a dance song. And I was getting off the dance floor. I was like, okay, you, you got this one, Pocahontas. Oh, she's dressed up like Pocahontas. I don't know if I mentioned this. <laughs> And I still don't know her name. She's just that blonde Pocahontas. So I was getting off the dance floor and she was smiling because she thought she won. But really, I was excited because I had to pee. And this Butterfly Kisses song was like a hall pass. I don't care what I'm missing. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to scoot by the snack table, hit the bathroom, circle back, be back. And I was scooping my Tostitos full of guacamole. And this little bony hand grabbed my arm. And... I look and it's a woman in her 40s who is dressed as a sexy witch or she is a witch that has taken really good care of herself. Um, and she just looked at me with this earnest enthusiasm and she goes, oh, I've heard so much about you. And I am studying her. I can't place her or know anything about her, but I'm bad at people. I'm really good at dog faces. And I always remember dogs. I'm like, I met that guy. I know I walk on 4th Street. Um, cats, I'm okay at cats, but people, not good. Uh, but I just needed to dance and I need to pee, so I had to get it over with. And I thought, I'll speed this up. And I was like, oh my gosh, me too. I've heard so much about you. And then I was getting nervous. She was going to catch me in the lie. But it turned out she didn't really want to talk to me. She just needed something to hold on to and talk. And that was me. Oh, it was so uncomfortable. She kept holding on to my arm, and we learned a lot about each other. Uh, she was an old friend of the host of the party, and she hadn't seen him in a while, but a uh, Halloween party's a great way to reconnect, right? And I really was having to pee, and the only thing that I can do other than peeing to get me to stop needing to pee is this thing I made up in first grade. It's been a long problem, um, where I kneel down on one leg, and I, make a, I have this chant that goes, one, two, three, four, I don't have to pee no more. Five, six, seven, eight, you don't need to urinate. And then I hiss for four counts. I go, And I, if, it, if there's complete silence, I swear, that cures my bladder for at least an hour. But I can't do it in public around a sexy witch. So I knew that the only thing that I could do was just like muster up the courage to interrupt her and tell her. But then... What happened was kind of a perfect storm. Um, I was about, the words were on my lips, excuse me, I have to go to the restroom. I hate interrupting people and I hate letting people know that I need to pee, it's very personal. Um, but the Humpty Dance came on. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And I look over and there's Pocahontas smiling at me like the cat that ate the canary because she sees that I'm trapped. This woman has my arm. And I was so upset and overwhelmed. And I looked at Sexy Witch and I'm pulling my arm away. I got my arm free. And she just kept talking. And I was like, there's no way. I don't, I don't get to tell her. I just have to let this whole conversation happen to me. And I'm going to miss the Humpty Dance. And here we go. Um, so... I do what anybody would do in this situation. And remember, this is an outside party, and um, there's music, it's a dark. So I sort of take a Peter Pan stance, and I make really intense eye contact with her, because I figure if we locked eyes, she can't look anywhere else. I think that sexual predators should try this, because it worked a, a great success with me. So I'm just looking at her real intensely, and I reached down like I'm picking a wedgie, and I was wearing thigh highs, not full tights, so when I scoot my leotard, there's nothing between my crotch and the night. And I, I scoot it over, and I'm listening, I'm nodding, our eyes are entwined, and I pee. And it felt so good. I felt like I was serving it to Pocahontas, I'm serving it to this lady. 
And for two seconds, I'm feeling high on life. Like, wow, I'm, I can do things. I don't care what I can't do. I can do this. And then I zoomed back into what was happening. And now, in the few seconds, literally, it was three seconds of joy that I had, she switched subjects so abruptly. She was talking about SIDS. SIDS, about a dead baby. Her baby that was dead from SIDS. And I don't know how she got there, but it's really a vulnerable moment. And she's staring at me and tearing up, and I'm peeing and peeing. And it felt like the most exposed moment of my life. And then the Humpty Dance ends. Sexy Witch has a silent tear rolling down her face, and I pop my leotard back into position. And I give her this long, intense hug because I feel like we really shared something. And I was like, well, this is gonna be my party friend. You know, you make party friends and you just end up hanging out with them all night. Like, you're not gonna talk ever again, but this is good. So I'm hugging her like, oh wow, this just it happened. And in the middle of our embrace, she spins away from me because of Where's Waldo is making his way up to the snack table. She grabs his arm and she goes, I've heard so much about you. I felt really, really used uh, and dazed. And I made my way back to the dance floor and Pocahontas smiled and put a little more moves like Jagger on. But I danced because I thought to myself, tonight I have made bathrooms where there were no bathrooms. The witch is gone. And at least until tomorrow, I'm still a dancer. The end. So many years ago when I first started having this relationship with this guy, and the relationship started off as just us fucking. Basically, I was at this pizza parlor and saw this really hot guy checking me out. And my friends were like, oh, this guy's checking you out. You should go ask him out. And I'm horribly shy, despite the fact that it seems that I would be really outgoing. So I did the incredibly mature move of writing a note on a napkin, no lie, running up to the counter and saying, don't read this until I leave. And then I put it down, he starts opening it, and I'm like, oh my God, no, and I ran. And so my friends were like, Mo Williams, famous BDSM sex educator, just gave the pizza guy a note and ran away like a little bitch. So half an hour later, though, I had like two missed calls on my cell phone. So he was into it and he calls me and it's like, hey, that was real cute. Let's get together and have some coffee. And I'm thinking, okay, great. So we go out on this first date and we're hanging out and I came out to him as being kinky and he sort of was aware of the kink community and was completely fine with it, sort of on an intellectual level, but then sort of assumed that I would be hanging from his rafters uh, within half an hour and that was not at all the case. And we went out to this bar and got totally smashed and we're literally making out in this bar with our hands in each other's pants. And after about a half an hour of this and the side eye from the bartender who was not thrilled that we were about to engage in oral sex at the bar. And I, I, I was like, it's San Francisco, get over it. This should not be that big of a deal, but it was Thursday. And I think that Saturday is oral sex night. So we jump in his car, go back to the East Bay, and we start fooling around. And this guy is like a six foot four, blonde haired, blue eyed, lanky, really attractive guy. And I'm, you know, not necessarily the person to say, hey, look at how fabulous and amazing and awesomely sexy I am. I'm actually secretly really shy, despite being this flagrant pervert. And so when it gets to the point where moving from sort of making out to actually having to do the sexy time stuff, I get really, um, my submissive nature kind of comes out and I sort of stop being really aggressive. And, and you hope that the other person steps up to the plate. And I'm never quite sure how that's going to happen. And he had no problem at all moving into this mode. So he starts pulling off my clothes. He's got his hand on the back of my neck. He's pulling on my hair. I'm getting really turned on. I'm like, okay, this is really good. Then it's the moment of the penis reveal, which for a lot of men is a very big deal. You know, here's the penis. I, 
It's a big thing to take out your junk. He, in this case, had nothing to worry about. One of the most perfect, flawless fallacies I've seen before or since, an amazing cock. I mean, this thing was just, it had the perfect curve and the girth, and it was like slightly thicker in the middle and then like now a little bit at the end, and you could get the grip at the base with it stuff and the mouthful just perfect and the balls hanging right down with the, my God, it was so. So anyway, so, okay, so this is amazing, right? And we're totally fooling around, we're totally going for it. And, um, he at one point sort of starts making that move over, get on top of me gesture. And I'm kind of a pudgy girl with short, stumpy legs. And so for me, this is not the most comfortable position. And so I, I'm sort of doing this sort of power struggle, like, hey, wouldn't it be better if you were on top of me? Fleep! And then I should like get him on top. He's like, okay, fine. So we're, we're going for it. And then he puts me over and pushes my head down into the pillow, which is super hot move 101. Uh, uh, I'm not saying that this is for the average fucker, but for the expert fuckers, for those fuckers who know what the fuck they are doing, you can get the girl's head in the pillow with the pulling on the hair and the slaps to the ass. Sweet. So I'm loving life. He's just fucking the shit out of me. I'm bent over. I'm crying and screaming to the pillow. And then I feel his hands reaching around my waist where there's fat because, you know, I'm a fat chick. And... I do the reflex fat girl thing where I grab his hands and pull them off and go, when you were patting my ass and slapping my butt, that was fantastic. Don't grab the fat, are you mad? So two seconds later, his hands are right back around, like this time on purpose. Like the first time I could say, maybe he forgot it was rude to grab someone's belly fat. (laughs) But this was definitely deliberate, right? So I'm thinking, okay, you fucking son of a bitch. Now I'm starting to feel self-conscious. I'm losing the rhythm. I'm not really digging it anymore because all I can think of is this guy is grabbing my fat and I'm really aware of it and it's oozing from between his fingers and he's just fucking and fucking and fucking and I finally twist around and I look up at him and I said hey babe could you not grab my fat while we're fucking and he shoves my head back down to the pillow and grabs my belly again with the other hand and goes shut up I like it and I was like totally like came on the spot like squirted all over the place like oh my god I love you. This is the hottest thing fucking ever. And so now he's like levering me back on his cock with my belly. And I'm just like, yeah, grab the fat belly. Fuck it. Yeah, you son of a bitch. Totally coming all over the place. It was so amazing. And then afterwards, I'm laying there just like, this was so. And he's like, why are you so self-conscious? He goes, I like, he's like, I love big girls. He goes, I love the way your body feels. I love the way your tits look. I love it. He's rubbing all over me. And it was funny because we're so, we're so trained, first of all, to be so self-conscious about our bodies. And then on top of that, to also feel that we have to be independently feeling beautiful and fabulous all the time, that we should be, that we should not need other people to justify ourselves, right? And so if you have that dichotomy, to have a moment where someone actually validates your beauty based on something that you haven't valued was so empowering. And I really, really embraced that regardless of any pressure to feel as though, oh, well, you should just be happy who you are regardless. I'm like, no, you know what's wonderful? To have someone else say, yeah, I love that too. Not in spite of the fact that you're fat, not in despite that, but because of that. Because, you know, nothing was as hotter than when we started dating, I tell you, we would walk down the street and there'd be like an even bigger, fatter black woman lumbering down the street and his head would turn and check her out. And I was like, bless your heart. I fucking love that. We need to go back to your house and fuck right now, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so yeah, that was, he, he, to this day, fondest memories, fond, fond memories. Get the door. <laughs> so 
But I still got my dignity Until she admits she really isn't into At which point I begin to sing It's simply a little song She needs like Babe, don't you know that when you run away It drives you crazy? Oh, why don't you know? Why don't you know? Cause darling, you're my summer evening Beautiful melody Crazy kooky song by Mitch Maddock called Why Don't You Know? He's at MitchMaddock.com. And we just heard a story by another well-known sex educator, blogger, author, the beautiful Melina Williams, beautiful in every way. M-O-L-L-E-N-A.com is where you can find Melina. Uh, we call her story The Fat Lady Sings. Our final story comes from someone who was just legendary when I was a kid. One of those people you just like looked forward eagerly to see the next time he showed up somewhere because you had just no idea what was going to come out of his mouth or how it was going to come out of his mouth or what he was going to do. Bobcat has become a prominent director in Hollywood, comedy director. He has a movie out now, a brand new one called God Bless America, and it looks truly nuts. He told this story at the Risk Live show in L.A. This, of course, is Bobcat Goldthwaite with a story we call The Stuntman. Why don't you know? Why don't you know? Because, darling, I would like you so much more if you love me back. Why don't you know? Why don't you know? Cause darling, I would like you so much more if you love me back. Why don't you know? Hi, thank you. Uh, hi. Well, okay, yeah, you don't look the same either. I, um... <laughs> There was an audible, like, oh, is that him? Is that really Bob Scratch Goldfarb? Hi, I, um, I had a woman come up to me in an airport. And this is a true story. She said, I don't mean to insult you, but you look like Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> and I really, that's the most genius comp you saw. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it is me. I look like fuck pie now. Or, you know, I don't know where you go with that. Here's the reality. The reality of like making it, you, you know, for me making it now is, is I make these small tiny movies that very few people see, but I'm so happy. And I had all that stuff that you're supposed to be happy with, and I was really miserable when people recognized me and stuff. Well, obviously too, you know. I mean, you don't have to be too deep to realize that I performed in another voice for 25 years. You know what I mean? I wasn't really comfortable with this idea of people recognizing me or being... <laughs> in showbiz, but I, uh, I'll tell a story about getting out of showbiz. How's that? I was on the Arsenio Hall show. That's how old these stories are. And Arsenio was getting dumped by Paramount. So I went on his show and uh, I go, are they really you know, canceling the show? And he goes, yeah. I go, well, let's not make it easier for the next guy. And I, yeah, I, uh, I smashed a monitor and put my Doc Martens through the back of it, and then I ripped off the mattresses and threw them out into the audience. Oh, and I spray painted Paramount Sucks on the backdrop. I forgot that part. And then he wrestled me to the ground, and he put me in a headlock. And then he, I'm in this headlock, and he's like, he goes, thanks, man. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> yeah. So... So now, immediately, I get a call from Leno to come on his show four days later, right? So they're expecting hijinks, right? And, uh, and I was really bitter. I was like, like, how dare you hire me? Like, I really wasn't happy. So, so I thought on the way there, I thought it'd be funny if I set his chair on fire. Like, uh, not his chair, but my chair. Like, uh, like Jimi Hendrix would do it. I didn't think it was that crazy. But um, uh, here's where I got arrested for arson. The part was is that I put a... Uh, I had taped the uh, <laughs> barbecue lighter onto my hand. Like, I was like, like, <laughs> like, are you talking to me? You know what I mean? It was really like, a, and I, <laughs> Travis Bickle, I had it taped in there. And then I had lighter fluid. By the way, it's premeditated. It doesn't matter if it's only five minutes before you get there. Like, I was 
driving there, I go, yeah, I'll go to 7-Eleven. And um, so I got the lighter fluid and taped this on. And then um, I was doing panel while I was squirting lighter fluid all over the chair with my ass. And I think that's a fucking talent, by the way. <laughs> you know? And so, so Lionel comes to my dressing room before this all happens, and he's like, um, he's like, so, you know, just don't smash up too much stuff when you get out there. <laughs> And the door shuts. I'm like, I'm not gonna smash up anything. I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it on fire. So uh, I'm an artiste, you know. I don't like to, you know, keep creating the same things, you know. I'm, so uh, <laughs> so I go on the show, and uh, Leno's going, so I saw you on the Arsenio Hall show. What happened there, huh? <laughs> you know, and uh, I go. Uh, I go, well, I go, well, it worked. And he goes, what do you mean it worked? I go, well, that's why I'm here, right? Yeah, and if you watch the tape, and I've only watched it once, I'm not like sitting at home watching it like, this is a Pruda tape over and over. Go, yeah, you fucking killed it, BC. Um, <laughs> mimes masturbation for the folks listening. Um, so I, uh, Leno, uh, I, 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 I said, you know, Jay, I know that I'm here because, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's good for ratings. So, uh, and I, I go, and you're my friend. And I thought I could, uh, so I thought I'd set the show on fire. And I actually squirted the chair and I lighted it. And I knew it would burn clean. I did tell one of my friends, I go, hey, stand by a fire extinguisher in case it fucking goes bad. But, um... <laughs> Well, the expect—I don't know. I think I did have an expectation. I thought the crowd would cheer. I don't know why. It's the first time I'm admitting that, but they were really freaked out. They—they fucking hated me, you know. It was like—it was really fucked up. But it was kind of funny because uh, Leno started screaming at me. Uh, they cut that out of the broadcast. He's like, you know, when he really gets going, he sounds like Dino. Like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And because he's and, uh, and I go, and I really said this. I go, Jay, I go, worst case scenario, everyone was there to see Clint Black that night. He was the other act. I go, worst case scenario, we lose 400 Clint Black fans. <laughs> Boo hoo, right? If you followed it, that's what, <laughs> that might have been the night the tea party was born. So, um, so, so, uh, so then, uh, uh, so Leno, uh, he screamed at me, and then, uh, and then he was obsessed with not coming off as a good person. Now, I really don't have an ax to grind with him. I've even spoken to him. I've even apologized. But, but the odd phone call I got from him was, he calls up and goes, Leno. Like, he didn't say, hey, it's Jay Leno, or hey, Bobcat, hey, what's, you know, he's like, Leno. <laughs> Very weird, Leno. Like, it was like a code, you know? Operation Leno. So, Leno. I go, hello? He goes, he goes so uh, I want to know, is uh, Dave Letterman a good guy and I'm a bad guy? And I go, I don't know either of you on a personal level, but from where I see, you're both out of your fucking minds. He goes, what would you do if I set your house on fire? I go, well, that would be weird, Jay. I, I, I did it on a show that you work on. I'm, I separate work and my home. So, oh, so people think, I was actually back on the show the following week, people think I'm banned, but the, uh, I'll end with this. I had to go to court, and my, I, my attorney, before we, like, I just thought I'd plead guilty. This is 100% true, and she goes, uh, plead not guilty. I'm like, uh, I saw the footage. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure it's me, you know, not unless, not unless there's a man and... Oh, and so my punishment was I had to do TV commercials, which is really true, which made absolutely no sense at all. I was like, hi, I'm Bobcat Goldthwait. If you're ever on a talk show, don't set it on fire. Ah! Yeah. Back to you, McGruff. Yeah. Here's, here's your old friend, Kelsey Grammer, with some safe driving tips. So, hi, uh, uh, I'm Chris Brown for domestic violence. Um, so, um, which is really asinine. Like, if you're in show business, you get in trouble, you do a commercial, like, that's 45 minutes, I'll never get back. But here's the truth of that story, is what I think is really funny, is that the Burbank Fire Marshal didn't accept it. He didn't like my performance. Because the real PSA was, and uh, I'll try to remember it, but the real PSA was really cringeworthy. I was like, hi, I'm Bobcat Goldwing. I can switch back and forth 
But if you're seriously injured in a fight, isn't it horrible? You're embarrassed for me. It was so, I felt so dirty doing that. Yeah, it's like, hi, I'm Bobcat Coldplay. And the guy didn't like my performance and I had to reshoot it days later. Like clearly I was like going, hi, I'm Bobcat Coldplay. I can switch back and forth. You know, apparently. Bobcat, I need an eight and you're giving me a five. Even the Burbank fire marshal wanted to direct. So I, um, <laughs> I felt like I had an end to this story, but I, uh, I did my PSAs. I haven't set any talk shows on fire. I ended up, you know what's funny is like, people think like the direct opposite thing happened. At that point in my career, I really was over it. I really, I didn't, I was not doing anything that I felt uh, enjoyed creatively but they were really wanting me on talk shows all the time just so I could come out and be a maniac. This is even before setting it on fire, you know what I mean? Like, I became Richard Simmons. Like, I go, you know, yeah. please welcome Bobcat Goldblatt. Ah! You know, and I'd run around and say shocking things and I felt so fucking horrible and empty. And um, you would think that got me banned from talk shows, but it's the direct opposite. What happened was they all asked me on, even shows like Regis and, <laughs> Regis and Kathy Lee. And I was on, I'll, I'll end with the story. I was on Larry Sanders, and, uh, and, I, and I was walking by, uh, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> and that, folks, is why I rent in the valley. So, um, that kind of fan base. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I was on the show, and, uh, we got talking and I said that I wanted, I, was, I told him I was going on Regis and uh, Kathy Lee and uh, that I wanted to vomit on them. That was the idea. <laughs> I was going to put Epicac that induces vomit in my coat pocket and then I was going to get them talking about, you know, Cody or whatever, you know, something. <laughs> and I was going to go to Denny's and have a huge meal and then take a pull on the stuff and then vomit on them. And, and uh, Gary's like, that's great. Can we do that on the show, on Larry Sanders? I was like, well, I really wanted to do that on the program. And they go, well, you could probably do both. So, so I tell the story on Larry Sanders. I show up to do Regis and Kathy Lee. And the segment producer, she goes, hey, I saw you on Larry Sanders. I go, oh, yeah, that's a funny show. They're really funny. She goes, yeah, yeah. Where's the epicac? I go, it's just, yeah. And then uh, she patted me down and found the bottle of epicac in my coat pocket. This is cheap. So they go, hey, we're going to think it's funny. We're going to give you a fire extinguisher on the air. Is that funny? I go, oh, yeah, that's funny. So I don't even wait for them to introduce me. I just walk out, grab the fire extinguisher, and I just shoot Regis with it, right? Bam! And he runs off the set. And then, I can't remember, I took my shirt off, too, for some reason. So I had, I had a lav on my nipple and a little alligator clip. It fucking hurt. And then... Um, <laughs> Here's the thing, so much to my surprise, Kathy Lee Gifford runs up to the audience, so I ran up in the audience and I shot her under the skirt, and she actually kind of, whoo, like she, you know. That <laughs> was bold, right? And, uh, and then they went to a commercial, and they said that I was responsible for the highest spike in the history of that show. Like, like everybody's like, hey, come on in here, look at this fucking asshole. So, um, oh, oh, here's the end of that story. Uh, the target audience there was really old uh, uh, women, basically, that day. And the CO2 from the <laughs> fire extinguisher sucked all the air out of the room. <laughs> so these old ladies were screaming and laughing, and then eventually they're like going... <gasps> I was like, fuck, I'm going to kill an old lady. All right. Um, uh, hey, thanks for uh, tolerating me. Good night. Bobcat Goldthwait! Time is running out, a ghost keeping me alive. I get what he means, you have to survive. Eight o'clock in the morning, too hard to give, too hard to live. I can't stop dreaming, do you know what I mean? Make up your angry eyes, you stay hidden But I see you smile, I wanna stay inside your arms I want to feel fine to 20 minutes and I'm ready It's not raining today I'm late and I must hurry Welcome to my way to I don't wanna weather, so I'm sorry It's not raining today Yeah.
that was a cast of characters, was it not? This brings us to the end here. We're hearing Ghost by Skip the Use behind me now. Uh, don't forget to visit sexcusemoi.com. I'm telling you, no one does it better. And just use the offer code R-I-S-K at the checkout. All orders with the code are 20% off. U.S. orders over $75 get free shipping. Listen, we're doing corporate workshops all about storytelling for business situations at South by Southwest this year, as well as at General Assembly in New York on March 7th. You can learn all about our business workshops and our regular workshops and one-on-one online storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Come see our live shows in New York and Los Angeles on Thursday, February 23rd. And don't miss our all-star episodes at risk-show.com slash shop. And now there's pretty much only time for me to say, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Behind me now with a song called Monkeys Everywhere. It's an interesting idea. But if I were president, I would take a stand for monkeys (laughs) remaining in limited locations. And I will not be swayed by the Monkeys Everywhere lobby. Nor will the lobby of the Metropolitan Art Museum threaten me. Were it to take leg and scurry about the land, sopping wet with buttermilk. 